Father, we just come to you and uh, we just thank you so much for your word and uh, especially, Lord, the grace that we see embedded in all of these texts. And what a text about grace we have here today, Lord, about the two covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. And, and uh, Lord, uh, we see that even in this story of Abraham and Sarah uh, and Hagar and Ishmael. And so, Lord, help us to glean uh, the great lesson of grace that we have here uh, from this text by the power of your Holy Spirit today. Lord, we just ask you to, to uh, bless our service. Lord, uh, we're, we're so grateful to you for all you've done for us. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper today, we want to just honor you and, and bless your heart, Lord, for you, know, you, you have done so much for us and we're so grateful to you. We thank you in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, as Christians, you could make a list of a lot of things that we need to cast out of our lives. I mean, there are a lot of things. I don't know about you, but one of the things I need to get out of my life is a bad temper. Uh, That doesn't fit a Christian. Uh, A prideful heart, that doesn't fit a Christian. An unforgiving heart, that doesn't fit a Christian. A lustful desire for things we know we shouldn't have, that doesn't fit a Christian. A gossiping tongue, a lying tongue. If you've got that, you need to cast that out that, because that doesn't fit a Christian. Idols that interfere with our relationship with our families and most of all with our relationship with God. We need to cast those things out of our life. But in order to cast those things out of our lives, there's one thing that we all have to cast out of our lives. And what I'm going to tell you here is going to surprise you. You've got to cast the law out of your life in order to be, live the victorious Christian life. You've got to get rid of the law. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that, so hang on to that thought here. Uh, but we'll see that as we get into this story here in a minute. Uh, but So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and pick up where we left off last time. Finally, Sarah had had the promised child. She had birthed Isaac. And what a miracle it was because Sarah was 90 years old when she had Isaac and Abraham was 100. And so uh, as we come to verse number 8 where we left off last time, Isaac is 3 years old and he's, gonna be, and he's finally going to be weaned in the Jewish culture, in that ancient culture. They, would, they, would, they wouldn't wean their children until they were 3 years old. And Abraham's going to throw a big party and that's where we want to pick up in uh, chapter number 21, verse number uh, 8. Okay, it says there, So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And after, a, after everybody was having a good time, a few hours had passed, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing Isaac. Uh, making fun of little Isaac. Now, Ishmael at this point is about 16 years of age. And you can almost understand why he's a little bit jealous of Isaac. I mean, he's been pushed to the side by his own father. Uh, uh, He's he's all all but forgotten by his own father. Sarah doesn't like him. I mean, uh, Sarah uh, uh, already had a bitter attitude towards Ishmael and Hagar before Isaac was born. I mean, uh, 
so, so now Isaac is here. Uh, she hates Ishmael, and she hates Hagar. And so uh, when she sees Ishmael harassing her son, her temper boils over, and, and look at what she says in verse number 10. She says, therefore she said to Abraham, cast out the bondwoman. He doesn't even, he, she doesn't even call her by name. She says, cast out that dirty slave. And, and she doesn't even call Ishmael by name. She says, and cast out her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So what she's saying here, I've had it with these two. And not only do I want them out of here, I, I don't want Ishmael to take part in any of the inheritance. Uh, he gets nothing at all. Now, that's a pretty harsh reaction to a teenage boy harassing a little kid. That's, it's pretty harsh and, and uh, pretty radical punishment, but, but uh, that's the one she calls for. And, and you can, you, you, as you would expect, Abraham didn't like what he heard. Look at verse number 11. And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because Ishmael was his son. I guess so. It, it, certainly it would have been displeasing. And he probably said something to Sarah like this. He says, don't you think that's a little drastic? Kicking him out of here and disinheriting him? I mean, he, he's my son. Uh, uh, you think he deserves that? And I don't think he would have kicked him out if the Lord had not intervened. And, and it's really surprising to me that the Lord does. But look at verse number 11. Then, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad uh, or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. So, I mean, God tells Abraham, kick her out. Do exactly what Sarah has told you to do. Now, that's, a, that's almost shocking to me that he would say something like that. Because to me, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, after all, Ishmael, it wasn't Ishmael's fault that he was even born into this world. Whose fault was it? It was Sarah's fault. It was Sarah and Abraham's fault. I mean, Hagar participated in it, but she was a bond slave. She really didn't have any choice. And so I got to ask the question, you know, Lord, why would you tell him to kick them out? That just doesn't seem fair. You know, God does some things sometimes that just don't seem fair. And the reason he does things that just don't seem fair is because God sees things that we don't see. And mainly things like the future. He sees the future. And he understood that Sarah's hatred for Isaac, I mean for Ishmael and for uh, Hagar was only going to grow and matters were only going to get worse. And it was going to be impossible for them to live together. And uh, so, so he knew that, that this rivalry between Ishmael and this rival, rivalry between Isaac was probably on a, only going to get worse. And so it was going to become dangerous for one of the two at some point. And so the Lord says, kick him out. Not only that, Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was supposed to be the only child. It was Abraham and Sarah's doing that brought Ishmael into the world. And so Ishmael was not the child of promise. 
and and so God, so not only was uh, Isaac going to be favored by Abraham and Sarah, he was going to be favored by God because that he was the child of promise. And so the very best solution at this point for for Ishmael and Hagar is for them to leave, and and that's the way God saw it. Now there's a lesson in that. There are some relationships that we're involved in that God wants us to sever. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to love the people that we're in the relationship with. But there's sometimes that that a relationship, a close relationship with someone is not something that you can be involved in and be a child of God. I mean, I go back to the people I used to run with before I was saved. And, And God doesn't want me running with them anymore. I mean, I certainly I love those people and I hope they get saved. But I can't hang out with those people anymore. I have to sever those. I had to sever those relationships when I got saved. I tried to hang on to some of those relationships. I tried my best to get some of those people saved. But sometimes you just can't do it. Let's take this one step further. Let's say you're a parent and you have a child, a rebellious child who grows up in the home and doesn't leave home. And, and they, they're godless. And they're in your home and they're causing all sorts of trouble. Now, it's going to seem harsh, but it very well might be the best solution that you cast them out of your house. Now, I wouldn't do that without asking the Lord, but I would certainly ask the Lord, is that a possibility? And, and it very well might be a possibility. But anyway, back to the story of, of uh, uh, Ishmael and uh, Hagar and Abraham and Sarah. Uh, God still had a plan for Ishmael. Let's look at what happens here. Uh, Looking down in in, uh, verse number uh, 13, yeah. Yet I will make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. In other words, I'm going to bless Ishmael, not because of Ishmael or Hagar. I'm going to bless Ishmael because he is your seed. And so Abraham obeyed the Lord. Now, this is even more shocking to me, verse number 14. Look at this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder, and he gave it, gave it to the boy, to Hagar, and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. That's a pretty barren place where she wandered into. Now, that really bothers me about Abraham right here. It really bothers me. Here is one of the richest men on earth at this particular time. And he doesn't give her a pack of mules with supplies and a few servants to help them alone. That's his son. He gives them one skin of water and a loaf of bread and sends them out into the wilderness, out into the desert, really to do what? To die. I mean, he... In fact, I think in his mind, he thought maybe they were better off dead than alive. Now, I got to tell you, I look at this story, and it tells me a lot about Sarah and Abraham, these, these great people of faith, these children of God. It tells me at this point, they were pretty callous people. Uh, they, they, were, they were pretty bad people, in, in, in one, at least in a, a couple of ways. But here's what I want you to see. Abraham and Sarah weren't blessed because of who they were. They were blessed because of who they were going to be. That's why they were blessed. Uh, that's, that's true for all of us. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes in my worst 
conditions, God blesses me the most. And I stop and I, I wonder why I'm such a wicked person still. I'm, I'm so sinful and so full of my flesh and so full of pride and all of these things I talked about earlier I need to cast out are still hanging around. Lord, why would you bless me? Well, God blesses me not because of who I am, but because who he, he's going to make me to be. I'm, I'm going to be a child of God, and when I see Jesus, I'm going to be just like him. And he who began a good work in me is going to complete it to the end. And so, so our blessings sometimes don't, don't get to think when you're being blessed by God that, man, I'm really arrived. God really likes me. He really likes what he sees in me. That might not be the case. But he likes what he sees, it, that he sees Christ in you. And that one day you're going to be like Christ. And so Abraham kicks him out. He kicks him out into the wilderness of Beersheba, that that very southern part of the Negev, the very southern part of Israel. And i got to tell you, that's a really barren place. Outside of Beersheba, it's a very barren place. And he really sends him out to die. And that's exactly what happens. They're about to die in verse number 15. And the water of the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. In her mind, to die. Can you imagine doing that? I mean, you don't want to see your kid die, and so you place him under the shrubs to die. Your 16-year-old boy, you just put him under the shrubs so he can die. He doesn't have any more water. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance uh, of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Now you talk about a heartbreaking scene. That is a heartbreaking scene. Here are Abraham and Sarah back in in, in midst of all of their riches, having a nice party, celebrating Isaac. And here's Ishmael and Hagar out in the wilderness, and they're both about to die. And all she could do was to call out. I don't even know what she called out. And, 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 And she wept. But God was there. God heard her. And God heard the voice of the lad, too. Then the angel called, the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? I fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad, and and he knows exactly where he is. So arise and lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, because I will make him a great nation. Your son is not dead yet. Nobody dies until God's ready for them to die. And I'm not ready for him to die, because remember what I told you, Hagar, back at Beer Elroy? Back at the well where God sees. You remember what I told you? I told you out of your son I was going to make a great nation. And, I, and my promises and elections are for sure. And so I'm going to make a great nation out of Ishmael. And he will not die. He's not going to die. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. I mean it wasn't a mirage God had supernaturally opened up a well. I mean, they had to dig deep for those wells. This, this is before Abraham and Abimelech dug that well at Beersheba, which means the seven wells. Uh, and so God supernaturally opened up this well so they could drink. And then we finish up in verse 20 and 21. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, and he became an archer. He became a warrior. He became a hunter. Who does he remind you of? I don't think he was a godly man. He reminds you a lot of Nimrod. And, he, and his nation became a lot like Nimrod's nation that we saw uh, uh, earlier in Genesis. So 
he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and if you were looking at a map, the wilderness of Paran is just southwest of Beersheba, southwest of the Negev, in between Israel and Egypt, and uh, uh, where the Israelites spent a lot of time in their wilderness journey, and uh, that's where they land, near Egypt, which makes sense because Hagar had probably had family in Egypt, and it says that uh, she took a wife uh, for him from the land of Egypt. So there we have it, a really sad, sad story. I think it's sad on, on, in reference to Ishmael and Hagar, but to me it's sad uh, on, on account of Abraham and Sarah because of the state of their soul that they would do something like this. But God knew it was best. God knew it was best. And, and here's what I, we want to look at now. This story has a literal meaning that we just looked at. But it also has one of the greatest allegorical meanings in the entire Bible. It's one of those lessons that if you can get it down, it will change your Christian life. Now, when I say an allegorical meaning, what do I mean? A spiritual meaning that's hidden, uh, uh, under, that underlies the literal meaning. And that's what we have here uh, in this story of uh, Hagar and Sarah. Now, I don't believe in allegorizing the Bible. I don't believe in trying to pick out, uh, I do it sometimes, but I don't believe in it. Uh, uh, but the Bible does that for us sometimes, and this is one of those cases. Uh, and so what I want you to do uh, is turn to Galatians chapter 4. Gal- oh, we go way back to the... New Testament, past the Gospels, past Acts and Romans, and get to Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians, we're going to be given this allegory of two biblical covenants. The out, and it's going to use this story as the backdrop for the allegory. Uh, it's the allegory of the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. And when I say the covenant of grace, I'm talking about the covenant of faith. Who represents the covenant of faith? Sarah, who represents the covenant of the law, uh, Hagar. Now, that's exactly what we're going to see as we go to chapter 4 and pick up in verse number 21. And listen to what Paul tells us here in verse number 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now, there are a lot of Christian people They won't say they do this, but they try to live under the law. It won't work. And and there's a great lesson for us right here. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, verse 22. One by the bondwoman, Hagar, the other by the free woman, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. Now, what does he mean according to the flesh? According to the works of the flesh. That was, Ishmael was the work of the contriving plan of, of uh, Sarah and Abraham. It was not the work of God. It was not a work of faith. In fact, it was the opposite of faith. And when we try to save ourselves and, and try to sanctify ourselves and glorify ourselves, that's the opposite of faith. We, 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 we do all of those things by faith. But he who was born of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And he who, he of the free woman, Isaac, 
was born through promise. Now here's the allegory right here, verse number 24. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. Now what happened at Mount Sinai? That's where the Israelites were given the law. So, so this is the covenant of law, which gives birth to bondage. The law doesn't set you free. It gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Now, Hagar was the mother of Ishmael. But even though she produced Ishmael, she couldn't produce the child of promise with Abraham. Because Ishmael was the work of Abraham and Sarah's flesh. It was not the work of faith. It was a work of the flesh. And the promises of God can never come by the works of the flesh. They can only come through grace, through faith. That's the only way they can come. So that brings us back to this Sinai. Let's look at Sinai. Now what happened at Sinai? The Israelites were given the law. What, what law were they given? Now, people will say this only refers to the ceremonial law. Well, they haven't read about Sinai. Though it was the main thing that was given at Sinai, the Ten Commandments. When you think of Sinai, you think of Moses and the Ten Commandments. So this refers to the Ten Commandments. It also does refer to the Mosaic Law because that was given there later. And then it also rever- refers to the ceremonial law. Uh, and, and what, and here's, I, I, I think it's one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he tells them all about the law and about the Ten Commandments. And what do the people shout? All you have said, we will do. They never did any of it. Not from the heart. They never kept the law. And so they were in bondage to the law their whole lives. The law was a curse. Because the law brought about condemnation. And they kept trying to keep the law in their own self-efforts in the works of the flesh. And they never could keep the law. And so they were actually cursed by the law. Was the law bad? No, the law was good. But they couldn't keep the law. And so they were condemned by the law uh, by their sins and failures. Now, not only does Hagar represent Mount Sinai where the law was given, she also represents Jerusalem where the sacrificial system took place. Look at verse number 25. For Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is the place of sacrifice, which now is, and watch this, is in bondage with her children. So even the sacrificial system kept the Israelites in bondage. Now, how could something as good as the law, as good as the sacrificial system, keep someone in bondage? Well, well, the author of Hebrews tells us. So hang your, hold on to your place here in Galatians and go back towards Revelation, almost to the end of the Bible, to the book of Hebrews, and turn to chapter number 10. Here's why... The sacrificial system in holy Jerusalem of all places kept the Israelites in bondage. Here's why. Look at chapter 10, verse number 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's not going to happen. It never could happen. It was the, the, 
all, the only thing that happened when they killed those animals, it was a reminder that, that sin cost life, that sin caused death. They would take their little pet lamb and they would take it to the temple, the best of their flock, and they would sacrifice that lamb. And every time they did that, it was a reminder of what? That they were sinners. That was what it reminded them of. Because look back at verse number 3. It says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The purpose of the law and the purpose of the sacrificial system is not to make us righteous. It is to remind us that we are sinners. Now, so what do we do? We're reminded that we're sinners Where's our hope? Well, look with me at verse number 5. Therefore, since all the law could do and all the sacrificial system could do, uh, therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body. Look at the caps here. He's speaking to Jehovah. You have prepared for me in caps, Jesus, God. In burnt Offerings and sacrifices you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. Now watch this. In the volume of the book. What book is he talking about? The scriptures. In the volume of the Bible, it is written of me to do your will, O God. You know what the whole Bible is about? You know what the volume of the Bible is about? It is about Jesus Christ. You know, whenever I hear somebody, and I hear preachers do this all the time, I keep this book, or I keep the Sermon on the Mount. I live by this book. Be careful with that. I don't live by this book. If I could live by this book, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on a cross. I live by faith that he died for me because I can't keep this book. You see the difference? That's the only way that we're saved. None of us can keep the law. And all the sacrifices of all the bulls and goats in the world could not save us. Only God on a cross could save us. And so we look to him by faith. We look to to Christ and and we live by faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews, the way he sums this up. Look at verse number 38. He says, now the just shall not live by law or the sacrificial system. They shall live by faith. We don't just get saved by faith. We live by faith. But if somebody draws back to the law and back to the sacrificial system, my soul will have no pleasure. And then people say that's drawing back into the sin. That's not what he's talking about at all. The whole context of this thing is law versus grace. And he says when you draw back to self-effort, to trying to please God in your own flesh, instead of through faith, instead of letting God's spirit make you righteous, and make you live righteous, then my soul will have no pleasure in you. Now that brings us back to Galatians. And look back in Galatians. To verse number 26, I think is where we left off, right? But the Jerusalem above is free. In other words, here they are down in Jerusalem, and they're making these sacrifices, and they're still in bondage. But the people of God don't look to Jerusalem. It's fun to go to Jerusalem, don't get me wrong. 
But uh, let me tell you what, I don't look to that Jerusalem right now because Christ is not there. I look to the Jerusalem above where I have been given the perfect liberty of God. The, the, the Jerusalem above is free. The children of faith, the children of Sarah, the children of the free w- women are no longer under bondage of the law. We've been set free from the bondage of the law and from the curse of the law because we look to the Jerusalem above where Christ sitteth on the throne. And we see his nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet and the stripes on his body. And we recognize that that's what sets us free from the law of sin and death. That's what sets us free from the curse of the law. And, and then he says that makes that Jerusalem the mother of us all. We're not born out of being part of Israel, uh, the, the nation of Israel. We're not born as children of God by being part of the nation of Israel because they were never set free. We're, they will be, but up till now they haven't been set free from the curse of the law. But we've been set free because we look to the, the holy Jerusalem above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and that Jerusalem is the mother of us all. That Jerusalem where Christ is is the Jerusalem that produces the children of God, because it's produced by faith and not by works. Look at verse number 27. For it is written, now this is a difficult passage to interpret, but, but, it, but it's real easy when you, when you work it all out. For it is, for it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who, are, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. In other words, who's he referring to here? He's referring to, in the allegory, Sarah, right? And he says, for the desolate has more children than she who has a husband. Who's he talking about when he's talking about she who has a husband? He's not talking about Hagar here. He's talking about Israel. Israel's husband was who? Israel's husband was God. Israel had God as their husband, but they lived by the law, and they never produced any children of God, even though they had God as their husband, because they refused to live by faith. They lived under the law. They lost the whole meaning of what the sacrificial system was all about. Some of, most of them did. Some didn't and some were saved. But those, but the Gentiles who were barren, who had no hope, who were separated from God, they produced the most children of God because they came to God through faith. Those who were part of the church came to God through faith. Not all Gentiles are saved, obviously. So, so we rejoice in the fact that, that uh, we've been born again. Then we come to verse number 28. Now we, brethren, and he kind of begins to sum this up. As Isaac was, are children of the promise. You've got to get that down. You're not children of the law. You're not children of the sacrificial system. You are children of the promise. What's the promise? That by faith, by faith, a great nation will come forth. A nation of people who are people of faith. And we're part of that promise. We're made children of God by faith. Verse number 29, But he, as he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, even so it is now. What is he saying there? If you really believe in grace, 
If you live by faith, you're going to be persecuted by the people who live by the works of the flesh. You're going to be persecuted. You can go into a lot of churches today, and I tell you, you go in there and you say, I I got news for you. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Uh, uh, End of the ceremonial law, but not the ten. No, Christ is the end of the law is what the word says. I'm not making that up. That's coming out quoting directly from Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now, he's not the end of the law because the law is still a tutor that reminds us of our sin. It still works in the heart of believers. The law convicts us. It reminds us, hey, we're not living up to the standard we need to be living up to. We need to cast these things out of our life. But we can't do it in our own power. We can only do it by grace. So it's a tutor reminding us of our sin, and, and, and uh, it still has its function. But we're not saved by the law. We're saved through grace. We, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have what? The righteousness of God. How much more righteous can you get than the righteousness of God? You can't get any more righteous than that. And you've been given the righteousness of God. And don't you see, that's the point of Galatians, what Paul's saying in Galatians. When you, when you begin to add to that and try to produce your own righteousness, you are trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. Because what you're saying is, you're saying it wasn't necessary for him to die. Just give me time and I can get this thing right in my own effort. You can't do it in your own effort. Few Christians... I mean, if I, if I ask you, do you grasp this principle? I believe everybody in here would raise their hand. But very few Christians really grasp this on a pragmatic plane. They, very few Christians grasp this. I, 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 I know some of you, I don't believe, probably grasp this. And I'm not, and, and, but it's something we've got, and I don't grasp it always. I, I tend to fall back into law sometimes, and God will, God will bring me, Bring me right back to grace. Show me I can't keep the law. But, but we keep, there's some of us that keep trying to keep the law in our own strength. And when we do that, we're going to constantly be failing. If you're constantly failing in your walk with God, it's probably because you're, you're trying to keep the law in your own strength. And when you do that, let me tell you what, the devil's going to have a heyday with you and you're going to live under condemnation when there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Christians who who condemn are condemned, the reason they're condemned and the reason they're feeling condemned is because they're trying to keep the law in their own strength. And you've got to come to the place where you give up on trying to keep the law and you say, Lord, keep it for me. Help me keep the law. And, I, and, I, and these Christians that I'm talking about, they're the most miserable of people on earth. And, and the lost people are happier than they are. They're better off lost. And some of them are lost. Because let me warn you, if this is your, if this is the, I mean, you can mix law and grace sometimes, but if that's your pattern 
of, of the way you live, then you very well might not be saved because you're still under law. And you're not going to get saved under law. So what's the solution? What's the solution? It's radical. It would be just like you came to, if I was a doctor and you came to me and you had a big cancer in your chest and the doctor said, and, the, and you asked me, what is the solution? I would tell you, you got to cut it out. You got to cast that thing out of there. You got to get it away from you. Look at verse number 30. Look at the solution. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say in Genesis chapter 21, what we just looked at? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now, this isn't about Hagar and Sarah at all. It's about all of us. It's about the law and it's about grace. We've got to cast out the law. And we've got to live by grace if we're going to be the son of the free woman, if we're going to be children of faith. Because, I'm, I'm adding a little bit to the translation here, verse number 31. Because then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free. We are Abraham and Sarah's children, not Hagar's child. Abraham and uh, Hagar's child. We are children of Sarah and Abraham, children of grace through faith, children that came not by the works of the flesh, but by a miracle of God. When you've been truly born again, it is a miracle of God. You if you're trying to reproduce it, you're wasting your time. You're infinitely off the, the charts as far as where you need to be. I mean, you can't produce perfection. And that's what it takes to make it to heaven is absolute righteousness. And as long as you're trying to do it in your own, in your own strength, you're going to keep failing and you're going to keep being condemned and you're going to keep being the most miserable person in the world. You've got to let go. And you've got to cast out the law, and you've got to trust the Lord to do it. That's how you're truly saved, that's how you're truly sanctified, and that's how you'll truly be glorified. And no more than Hagar and, and Isaac could live with uh, Abraham and Sarah, I mean, Hagar and Ishmael could live with uh, Sarah and Isaac, we can't live under the law. We can't mix the law with grace. You can't do it. You're going to fail if you try to do it. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by law in this context. Any means of trying to save ourselves, that is law. But more importantly, or the, thing I, the thing I see most often people trying to do who call themselves Christian, we try to sanctify ourselves. We try to make ourselves holy in our own self-efforts. It's not going to happen. You can only be sanctified by the Spirit of God. And we certainly know we're not going to ever glorify ourselves. We can't be sanctified by the works of the flesh. And you can't add one thing to the perfect righteousness of God that has been given to you by grace through faith. Now, does that mean we cast off the moral code of God and just live licentiously? No. May it never be, Paul says. 
If we're truly saved, if you're truly saved, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have come, become new in your soul. Morality is part of who you are. Now you're gonna, you're gonna fail because you're gonna, you still got a flesh. And, and so, but overall, we walk victoriously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what. People of real faith are the most righteous people on this earth. The people that I've met who have real faith, strong faith, are the most righteous people living on this earth. They live righteously. I've known some legalists, and you can spot them right away. And they're nothing more than whitewashed tombs. They look real pretty, and and and, and they don't smoke, they don't drink, and they don't... Uh, fool around, they don't do all the major, what they think are the major sins, but deep inside their heart hasn't been changed and they're nothing more than whitewashed tombs with dead man's bone on the inside. And we don't want to be that. We're people of grace. And that, does, does that mean that we're not going to have struggle with sin? No, we're going to have struggle with sin. I mean, we still have our old nature fighting with our new nature. But we don't get the victory by trying to keep the law. We get the victory where the battle comes is with the will. I mean, you got to have a will to say there's something in my life that I need to get out of my life. And you've got to make the choice. Well, I can't get it out of my life. I can't get that bad temper out of my life. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, we can. I, I can get it out of my life, but not in my own strength. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Romans chapter 8, we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those sins that are dragging you down, even if you're a Christian, and all of us have some of those, we can have victory over those when we quit trying to fix them ourselves, and we make, by, the, by a matter of our will, we say, I want this out of my life, and we begin to ask God to get it out of our life. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take it out of our lives. The trouble is, we're like Aiken. We like hanging on to a lot of those things, those old things we had in our old life. And they're going to bring us down at some point. But God wants them out of our life. And so there's still a struggle. But so many people, so many of us, we never experience the victorious Christian life because we never cast out the bondwoman. We, we don't do it. We're still trying to mix grace with law. We're trying to change ourselves, and we're trying to live righteously in our own strength. If you're trying to change yourself, and you're trying to live righteously at your own strength, you're doomed to failure. You're doomed to failure because you can't mix grace with law. Paul puts it like this. You're still in Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Look at the, what he says here. He says, you have become estranged from Christ. You have no relationship with Christ. You who drink too much or smoke too much or fool around too much. That's not what he says. He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You who don't cast out 
the bondwoman. You have fallen from grace. That's the most misinterpreted passage in the entire Bible. Taken out of context. He's fallen from grace. He's back at the casino again. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about falling from the grace that can save you, that can keep you out of the casinos, out of the, out of the bottle, out of whatever's ailing you. He can keep you out of those things. But you're trying to fix it on your own or you're not giving it to the Lord to fix and so you're still dealing with it. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We don't have it yet. Positionally, I've been made perfectly righteous in Christ, but I'm still struggling with my flesh. But I've got a hope that one day I'm going to be as righteous as I am positionally, I'm going to be that way practically in my life. I'd like for that to happen before I die, but I doubt it will because I still have my flesh. But when I'm glorified, it will happen. And that's why the Bible over and over and over again says the just shall live by what? Law? By faith. This volume of this book is not about law. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, not just to save us, but to sanctify us, to make us holy, to glorify us. And as Paul says in Colossians, as we receive Christ, how do we receive him? By faith. So we walk in him by faith. Every day, you've got to walk by faith and not by law. Give up, your, give up the law as far as making you righteous goes. Let it convict you that you're not righteous. But that's all it does. It's not going to fix you. You're not going to fix you. Christ will fix us all if we cast out the bondwoman. If we never cast out the bondwoman, we might very well not ever be saved because you're estranged from Christ if you don't. And if you're saved and you don't cast out the bondwoman, you're going to be the most miserable of creatures on this earth. Because you're going to constantly be falling and trying to pick yourself up instead of trusting the Lord. And you're going to live, the devil's going to condemn you and you're going to receive that condemnation. And you're going to be a miserable, bitter person. So cast that woman out of your life and rest in Christ by faith. And you know what you'll find? You'll find the peace and joy that God has in store for you when you truly rest in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this great lesson here and that you've given us here, not only in Genesis, but in Galatians, a lesson that we all need to take to heart. Lord, there's so much victory that you have in store for us if we'll just trust you and quit trying to fix things ourselves. Lord, we've got to make those hard choices to get those things out of our lives that, that, that uh, Lord, you, you know don't belong there. Because the law will keep condemning us as long as they're there. But, Lord, even then we can't fix them. We need you to fix them. Lord, all of us can identify some areas of our life that need fixing, and we, just, we want to quit trying to fix them ourselves and just rely on you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the volume of this book that is about Jesus Christ and his death 
and resurrection and his new life so that we can be new creatures in him. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's who's hasn't ever really come to that point where they're living by grace, Lord, they very well might not even be saved. So I just ask today that you use this text to just convict them that they're on a wrong track and they need to just turn around and turn to you. And Lord, you'll save them and give them the new life, give them the victory that they've been looking for. Father, we just thank you for that victory that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.